Welcome to another episode of Balsams, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. I'm Tamara Hajat. I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Cincinnati Children's in Cincinnati, Ohio. And today I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Peter Liu from Nationwide Children's in Columbus, Ohio. But... He is recording from Amsterdam. Peter, I'm so jealous. (laughs) Well, um, we did try to schedule this or record this uh, before I came to Amsterdam. But hey, this is an international podcast. So, uh, yes. I was planning uh, on taking a a quick nap. (laughs) And it ended up being like a long nap because we were planning. Yeah. Well, but like and also, I mean, it's Ramadan. Right? It is so, Ramadan, yeah, yeah. I'm I feel like Ramadan. that's. I can't even imagine how I'd feel in the evening, be, right before sun the sun goes down. You know, I feel like I would need a nap. So I feel like you're totally justified. Yeah, yeah, it it's totally uh, definitely fine. exhausting. So during Ramadan, you can't eat or drink anything between dawn and sunset, and. It is a very, very fun month. I'm so mad that they did the time change (laughs) before Ramadan, because right now in Cincinnati, Iftar, which is the time we break Mm -hmm. our fast, is at eight. And without the time change, it would have been like around seven. (laughs) But it's better than summer. Summer is like 945. And you start your fast at around 340 or 345 or 330. So it's a very, very, very long time. Yeah. So, okay. So for the people who may not be as familiar, Mm -hmm. a few terms. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what is the meal called when you break the fast? It's called iftar. Iftar. Okay. Yeah. So um, in Arabic, it means breakfast. Uh huh. Oh, yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Um, but it's like your first meal of the day. Right. You're breaking so, the fast. Iftar. Yeah. You're breaking your fast. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, uh, like on Instagram, I see all these uh, pictures of people saying Ramadan Mubarak. Yes. Yes. What does so, that mean? What is that? So, Ramadan Mubarak means uh, may you have like a blessed Ramadan. Ah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Two ways you can wish somebody a like a good Ramadan, either Ramadan Mubarak or Ramadan Kareem. Kind of the oh, same okay. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So both okay. are the same thing. And then uh, so it's a full month and at the very end, what's it's like a celebration. Correct. It's called Eid. Yeah. Um, okay. oh, man. So, yes, um, you are uh, completely forgiven for missing the uh, podcast <laughs> intro recording the first time. I have like so much respect for anyone who even like attempts to do Ramadan. Like I can't. Oh, that's got to take so much discipline. It does. It does. And the hardest part for me is the coffee withdrawal. <laughs> I first... drink it at like three in the morning. <laughs> well, I mean. Oh, you can't have it the whole month? No, you can. Oh. But I prefer to sleep. Like, I don't want to wake up. Oh, yeah. I feel yes. like that was a great... Uh, I, these are all questions I've wanted to ask for many, many years. Yes. So. Thanks for asking. Thanks for asking. And Ramadan Mubarak to everybody ah. observing. <laughs> Ramadan Mubarak to you. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> so how's your trip to Amsterdam? And what are you doing there, Peter? Oh, so... 
I mentioned on the last podcast, like, so it's one of our PhD students, PhD thesis defense. So uh-huh. and part of her uh, ceremony. So that's going to be tomorrow mm-hmm. morning. So we, Carla Lorenzo and I flew in here and still so be part of her ceremony. She spent a few years uh, doing research with us. And uh, yeah, I get to see some old friends, our uh, former guest, our first international guest, Dr. Mark Benninghaus. So we're having uh, dinner exciting. at his house tonight. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, he's such a, he's, I mean, their whole group, like such uh, gracious hosts. Like I, we've had dinner at his house before for the, a couple of students ago who uh, graduated, Elon Copen. And uh, oh, it's always a good time. That's amazing. And uh, I've never been to Amsterdam. What? Ooh. Yeah. What okay. are the is... cool, cool things okay. to do there? Yes. So honestly, uh, my favorite thing about Amsterdam is just walking around, like uh-huh. wandering. Like, literally before this, Leslie and I walked for uh, over six miles, just like wandering around. You know, of course, the stereotypical canals. Beautiful. Just uh, even... Even today, it's a little bit cold, a little bit windy, but just it's like a very charming city. There's tons of good food that is just like beautiful, charming cafes everywhere, coffee, fries, all kind of fried little fried foods, uh, croquettes and uh, bitter ballen, apparently. Mm. And uh, it's just like it's a cool place. There's so many museums, the Van Gogh Museum. I actually personally hate museums, but there are for those who like museums, (laughs) there are. On the museums and parks and uh oh it was great. My so favorite just, thing just to do around. my favorite thing to do in museums is go mm-hmm. and um pretend I know what the painting is about and just like <laughs> okay. come up with a story. Oh, just tell a stranger <laughs> next to you or uh if the stranger would listen. Usually I go there with somebody <laughs> I see. who's yeah, forced yeah, to yeah. listen to me tell my interpretation of the painting. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of cool things I think to do in Amsterdam. Yeah, and oh. we have some good friends here. So, so excellent. Yeah. I'd be excited to see some pictures of Amsterdam when you come back. I'll text you a bunch right now, mostly of me <laughs> drinking and eating food. <laughs> oh, food, yum. <laughs> yeah. Um. All right. So, do we have any announcements? Yes. So So, there's going to be a pediatric GI chat on this topic. It's going to be about EOE. We're going to have Dr. Muir and we're going to have Dr. Rajita Venkatesh on the chat as well. So be sure to log in this Thursday on Twitter at 7 p.m. Eastern time and answer some questions read the chat ask some questions put in your thoughts engage if you don't have time at 7 p.m then it's always there on twitter so you can go back there and learn about eoe so that was an insight on our topic Mm -hmm, (laughs) today mm -hmm. for vowel sounds do you want to introduce our guest yeah so okay so right so like you mentioned today we're talking about we've had an eoe episode in the past with dr glenn Farida. But today is really talking about the next level. So some of the more controversial topics. And also, I think we talked a lot about, you know, kind of the new developments in terms of like understanding of the disease and also treatment uh, options. And obviously last time, dupilumab was not really, I mean, we talked about it briefly, but it wasn't really a thing yet. So we talked all about that. And uh, and endoflip, so, your favorite and topic. And endoflip, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And hey, that's... Uh, 
volatility really infiltrates like everything. So <laughs> anyways, so yes, so we talked to Dr. Amanda Muir. So she is a, a pediatric gastroenterologist at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She uh, does clinical and research work. She does a lot of research on EOE, including trying to better understand the passive physiology and uh, looking at novel diagnostic and therapeutic techniques. She is really one of the leaders in this field and doing a lot of exciting work. So it was an honor for us to have her join us on the podcast. And if you like this podcast and don't follow us on Twitter or Instagram, please follow us at at Bow Sounds and Facebook at Pediatric GI Podcast to know the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. And if you like what you've heard, then please support us by telling people you know about the podcast, by leaving a great review on the podcast. It's also been a while since we've had any shout outs for people who left us reviews. Oh, you want to? So, uh, I just pulled it up. You know, uh-huh. the uh, we got a great five star review from Gar922. Shout out to Gar922. Yeah. Review is titled Excellent Information. I've learned valuable information from this show, both personally and professionally. Personally, it must mean like food recommendations and stuff. As a speech language pathologist who treats children with pediatric feeding disorders and the spouse to a husband with severe IBD and the mother of five young children, these episodes oh. have been excellent at communicating evidence-based information in an easily consumable way. Thank you. Well, Thank you're you welcome. Thank you very much. Man, Thank you very really much. Nice. We appreciate it. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. And, please leave and reviews do, if you like it. Yeah. And we do listen to feedback, right? So we've kind of made some changes on the uh, podcast uh, based on the, some feedbacks. So if you have any yeah. feedback, send us an email. Or if you have any suggestions, we're happy to hear. Except when people say there's too much banter. That we uh, continue <laughs> to ignore. I know one person who says that. <laughs> Only one person. <laughs> Not going to say who. Unnamed. Yes. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, All right. But yes, we have a great episode in store. And on to the show. <laughs> If we slow it down slow enough, we will be able to get it together. So. We've got this. We've got this. Yeah. Welcome, Dr. Muir, to Bow Sounds. It's so exciting to have you here to talk about EOE. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor to be here with you guys. And I heard you're a fan. Because <laughs> <laughs> you told me five minutes ago. <laughs> But yes, thank you. Uh, thank you us. for joining and thank you for your time. So we're going to start with our first question. A lot of guests find this a challenging question. How would you describe yourself in one sentence? So I am an esophagologist and an epithelial biologist and an avid TV watcher and a caffeine Ooh. drinker and a mom. Ooh, awesome. Peter, like this avid TV watcher. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so like we had changed our second question. I know. But I don't want to put you on the spot. Any TV recs right now? So I just ingested in record time Sex Lives of College Girls. Which Ooh. I, I'll ingest anything Mindy. Um, okay. So she produces that. And I, she also does Never Have I Ever on Netflix, which is quite. Oh, cool. yeah. I love that yeah. one, too. Well, okay. Back to our, like, official second question, <laughs> which... Uh, you know, so like I've been, I've been to Philadelphia just one time in my life when I, it was, I think it was for like a fellowship interview. I've never but, been. You know, I, okay, but I would love to go back. So if we were, whenever, when we do eventually come visit Philadelphia, where do you recommend that we go or places to eat that we may not like necessarily think of right away? 
Philadelphia is a secret foodie town. So mm-hmm. I do think there's so many places to just go and relax and eat. And I think one of my favorite things to do with, when people come to town is to sit um, in one of the restaurants right outside of Rittenhouse Square. And they all have like fabulous cheese boards and have a glass of Chardonnay and just take in the city because there's street performers. There's people oh, wow. right in the area where you go shopping. So it's kind of a bustling area right next to a park. Rittenhouse Square. Yes. Okay. All right. That sounds relaxing. Very yeah. fun. So my first trip, um, I just ate like three cheesesteaks for one meal. And then I loved it. But I feel, I feel like that's not like really getting a sense of the city. No, Although that's the other way to do it, though. That that's yeah. actually that's probably more cultural than. But then, is but Philly I went to like, known, like what with is Philly known by its cheese? Cheese steaks. Cheese steaks. Yeah. Cheese steak. I thought you said cheese stick. Oh no 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 cheese steaks no 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 cheese steaks. <laughs> I was like, why is Peter only eating three cheese sticks? <laughs> <laughs> that would not be enough for a meal. But I, yeah, I, I mean, but it was like. Yeah, the romantic version. The other way to do it is go to an Eagles game and have a cheesesteak. So there's uh, both sound amazing. So, okay, we'll have to, we'll keep that in mind when we come to visit. Yes. So Dr. Mira, we are going to talk to you about EOE and the management of EOE. We did have an episode during season one of the podcast, and we talked about how to diagnose EOE. And we touched a little bit about the management But today we're going to go into detail. Uh, I do want to ask you, how did you develop your interest in EOE? So back when I was a fellow, I was completely undifferentiated. I went to a pancreas lab. I went to a liver lab. I went to an IBD lab. And I, I was kind of all over the place. And one of the labs was doing some basic esophageal work. And I had noticed, gosh, we have so many patients with this disease. And it really just seemed to be burgeoning. There were so many patients and we have such a large cohort here at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I think the combination of seeing so many patients in clinic and then having this excellent lab opportunity combined. And I met a mentor who was very passionate about the esophageal epithelium. And I was like, wow, she just is so passionate about figuring this disease out. And I latched onto her enthusiasm. And then there's such a great collaborative network of people who study this disease here. So it was like an easy place to jump in. And I feel like I was joining a family. So it all worked out. I love it. Okay. Talking about EOE in in particular, some of these questions are a little bit like, you know, maybe some management challenges, some nuances. Okay. This first question is a little bit about endoscopy, but not really like diagnostic criteria. Just from a practical standpoint, so many of our patients, they come to clinic and maybe they're having some dysphagia, but potentially just like vomiting, especially if they're younger, and maybe they've already been started on acid suppression. So there's a two-parter. Okay. The first one is before you scope them, do you ask them to stop their acid suppression and for how long? And then the second part is like, I think even after we make the diagnosis, sometimes kids just don't really have any symptoms, but we keep on trying to make them do all these endoscopies because it doesn't seem like correlation is that great. So how good is the correlation between endoscopic findings and symptoms? So you guys jumped right in with the controversy first. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Like the stuff that we get in disagreements about frequently at our group meetings. So if I have a patient walking off the street and they have bad dysphagia and they're have not been on a PPI yet, I will try to just scope them as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. Similarly, if there's someone who's having some symptoms of esophageal dysfunction, and I realize that's a broad term. So if someone comes in, they're vomiting and they have atopy, 
I think my spidey sense is up. And I'm like, we should probably scope this patient right away before we start a PPI. And I think I have the luxury of seeing a second opinion population. So I'm seeing a lot of patients who have already been diagnosed and we can go back and hindsight be like, oh, we shouldn't have started the PPI because we missed it on the first scope. I do think for the general gastroenterologist who's seeing a ton of patients who are coming in with very vague symptoms it's very challenging to not start a PPI sometimes, and that can really muddy the water. So I think if I am in a scenario where it's very clear dysphagia or there's an atopic predisposition, it's my preference to have no PPI on board and get the scope and figure out the diagnosis. That being said, life is not perfect, and we often do these scopes in muddy circumstances. And so I think you just have to be practical. And if you feel like this patient can't wait six or eight weeks to come off the PPI and get scoped because they're having such bad symptoms, I think you do the scope in the best circumstance you can and try not to lose them to yeah. follow. Because I think sometimes they feel so much better on PPI and then they come off of it in six months. And then the problem is a year later, they could have esophageal narrowing and then we would worry about them and you can't, we missed the diagnosis. So we didn't know to watch them. If I had my perfect world in every chart, I would write this scope was done on a PPI and like big mm -hmm. yellow letters, one of those epic alerts that, that you get. So I think keeping track of the patients that you know, you scoped on PPI that you know, might have a muddy diagnosis and knowing them is sometimes the best you can do. So yeah. if we can talk them into stopping it, we should. I think so. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. For to how keep long? it pure as possible. I usually try to do six to eight weeks if we can. Okay. So, mm -hmm. like, for example, I get a referral from a pediatrician with somebody with dysphagia, and the patient has already been on three months of PPI because reflux symptoms. I stop it for six to eight weeks and plan to scope then. If you can. And if they're if absolutely miserable, then you just do what you got to do. Okay. If they're not drinking and they're not eating, they've completely gone off solids. I think you just get your upper GI and right. scope and you do the best you can. And then you just wean over time and you let the family know we might have to do another scope in the future to figure this out if this isn't clear. Yeah. I think it just totally depends on the situation. And if the patient is too sick or not thriving, I think you just might have to scope in an in imperfect situation. Right. I love it. That's going to like change my practice. And then as you can see, like we saved the hard questions for you, the easy questions we gave to <laughs> Dr. Peruta. So the second part of the question was like, what do we know about correlation between endoscopic or histologic findings and uh, symptoms? So they're really crummy correlations overall. And when they've done this with both pediatric and adult scoring systems, and it's both ways, it's bad. So what I mean by that is we have patients who are like, I am fine. I feel great. Yeah. And we go in and scope them and it looks terrible. Yeah. And we tend to think that's because of the coping mechanisms. So mm -hmm. that's because these patients over time know that if they chew their food enough, if they drink enough water with every bite, they will feel great and they won't feel it, which is great that they are coping so well with their disease, but it's also makes it very challenging for us to follow symptoms. But right. then we also have our other set of patients who are feeling a lot of stuff in their esophagus, whether it's reflux, heartburn, dysphagia, and we go in and we're like, it's okay. <laughs> and it goes both ways. And when they've done like really good studies, there's an adult scoring system called the ESI, where they show patients pictures of foods, like here's a steak, here's spaghetti, how do you feel? Like really trying hmm. to tease out some of these feelings that people have about food, even those don't correlate well enough, which unfortunately means that we have every time we change therapy or every time until we get someone into a remission, we have to mm -hmm. scope. Yeah. Yeah. Talking more about PPI. So there is something called PPI responsive EOE. And I would like to talk a little bit more about what that means and how prevalent is it? And yeah. 
Yeah. And then my second question is going to be after your answer. <laughs> All these are like multi-part questions. Sorry. I just, there's a lot of things I wanted to know about EOE. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's like disguising 50 questions into 12. The term PPI responsive EOE has come under some scrutiny lately yeah. because some people feel like you would never say, oh, I have ASA responsive UC. True. Yeah, right. so there's been a big push in the last few years and this from a lot of work that was done in Texas by Rhonda Susan, Stu Speckler, and Adair Chang, where they, let's call this entity EOE. And they really started to uncover some of the mechanisms molecularly about why these PPIs are so anti-inflammatory in the esophagus. And so I think it's beautifully cool that if you give a PPI and we think we're just blocking acid, but also it's like really blocking the eosinophil chemotaxis in the esophagus. Interesting. Doing two different things. Yeah. And so I think that I think that it's a nice it's a nice way to use a very well tolerated, easy, easily accessible drug that can get a good chunk of patients, like thirty to forty percent of patients into remission. So yeah, that's really cool. And then so you put them on PPI. Do you when you start? Do you put them on high dose PPI twice a day? And if you scope them and they're better, do you ever reduce it? And how? So unfortunately, the way the literature is that we only know how it works when you start people off on high dose. And so that's two mix per kg divided BID or 40 BID for your big kids. And what they've done, and this work was pioneered by a group in Spain by Gutierrez, Junquera. And what they did was they put patients on high dose and saw that a large number were PPI responsive and their EOE went into remission. And then they were able to wean to one per kilo or 40 once a day in about 80%. So whether it's you have to hit it hard and then you can taper over time or whether you could do a titrate up, I'm, it, I don't think we know. I like to hit it hard, get you into remission and then taper as allowed. The problem with tapering, unfortunately, is that 80% of patients do res- do seem to do well with the taper down to one per kilo, but there's 20% that don't. So you still have to scope again. And so I often leave it up to the family. Sometimes I'm like, we, in a few months, we could consider tapering. However, we're going to have to scope you again. And I think for someone who's going to have to miss a day of school or basketball practice and all of those things that come with doing a scope, I think you can think about the timing. You could think about when you want to do it. Let's wait a year. Let's have some good growth and then we'll wean and things like that. I think just take it in a little bit of context with where the child is developmentally. Can you get them to be a little bigger? Can you get them to be a little more mature? How traumatic is the scope for this child? If it's no big deal and they don't seem to care, then you could really do it at any time. So we talked about PPIs. So now let's move on to steroids. And the last episode too, we covered like the different types of steroids that we use, but there's, I think there's also some nuance here too. The ones that are primarily studied, swallowed fluticasone or budesonide, where do you position this? Is this always going to be after a trial of PPI? How do you position it? And then which one do you choose? How do you think about that? That's probably the most important part is how do you figure out what the right therapy is for the kid? And there's been a big movement as in the last few years, especially work done by Joy Chang out of Michigan. She's an adult gastroenterologist. And to think about shared decision-making with your families, rather than coming in and be like, okay, first we're going to try PPI, then we're going to try steroid. And if that doesn't work, we're going to eliminate milk. Rather than doing it in a stepwise progression, it's really laying out all the options and having the family choose which is the best for them and which is the best for their child. Because for some kids, eliminating milk is really not a big deal to their social life. 
But for other kids, if you are taking pizza away from them, that's going to have major social repercussions. And you want to have something that everyone in the room is on board with. I think I usually think of it as buckets of therapy when I'm talking to patients. So I say we have medicine buckets and then we have dietary buckets. And one or the other is not necessarily better or worse. It's completely up to you which bucket you want to choose first. I walk you through what each scenario would look like. In the context of swallow topical steroids, I usually try proton pump inhibitor first before going to topical steroids. I do think there's occasionally a population, people who are having terrible dysphagia, where they're really having solids get stuck all the time, starting to blend their food, or patients who have had a recent food impaction and feel terrible. So I do think there's a world where you think, do we just want to do sort of a top-down therapy and get this patient into remission faster? Because topical steroids do work better. We know that if PPIs work 30 to 40% of the time, topical steroids work about 60 to 65% of the time. You'd be starting with a more effective therapy in a patient who potentially has more severe disease. Also, when I'm thinking about topical steroids, so we have typically Flovent versus Budesonide, and how do you pick who you give what to? And that is a struggle sometimes because everybody has different preferences. The topical Flovent involves putting an inhaler up to your mouth, wrapping your lips nice and tight around it and puffing it in. And I will be in clinic and I will put on Glenn Feruda's video Mm -hmm. that he has on YouTube. If you just Google inhaler for EOE, it's the first video that pops up. And I even put it in their discharge paperwork so that we can watch it all together and learn how to do it Yeah, because it's not intuitive and you can't breathe, which is the opposite of what you'd think to do. with (laughs) Yeah. And then the key is nothing to eat or drink for 30 minutes. That tends to be much, much more popular with older kids. I think being able to do an inhaler and have it be portable and not have to have applesauce or honey with you everywhere you go is makes it a much better option for kids who are on the go and don't want to feel constrained by their medicine. However, I will say for every patient I offer that to, I do have plenty of teenagers that don't like the idea of trying to swallow a miss and they hate Mm -hmm. that and they worry they're not getting it. I do think the nice thing about having the option of budesonide. So what we always recommend here is you take your vial of budesonide and you mix it with exactly a measured teaspoon of applesauce or honey or maple Mm -hmm. syrup and you mix it and then swallow it. And then again, nothing to eat or drink or rinse or brush for 30 minutes. That's obviously works much, much better in the younger kids who can't quite do the timing of the inhaler. And Evan Dillon recently published a study that four puffs of the 220, so 880 BID, is equivalent to one milligram BID of the budesonide. So knowing that is helpful if given perfectly. There is some equivalent, but four puffs twice a day of the 220 is sometimes challenging to get it covered by your insurance. True. More about steroids. Okay. Are there situations when you will use systemic steroids and what does that look like? Um, So that's a good question. So there is a population that occasionally will do almost what I consider asthma dosing of steroids Mm -hmm. in kids who are the very severe dysphagia, not eating any solids, and you almost want to kickstart their therapy. I do not think there's any evidence behind that. It is become a practice that we've adopted here that we do in conjunction with the allergists where we do a five-day burst. And as Mm. they start their flow vent to just try to make them feel better as quickly as possible. They do seem to feel better when I've talked to them two weeks out in a very anecdotal, not evidence-based way. They do seem to feel better during the burst and for a few weeks later. And hopefully it does help to kick off some rapid healing. But I think that there is no evidence for a long-term steroid course, like a month long or something like that. Yeah. Maybe like a 
for a teenager, like a 40 milligrams once a day for five days, like asthma. And then like a kid who comes in like with a food impaction. And uh, if there's like a stricture, does that matter? Or is it like, oh, the stricture is probably not going to respond. Does that play into it at all? We don't really know how Mm -hmm. strictures respond to steroids. I think that we do have some kids who have significantly worsened their esophageal caliber over time. Mm -hmm. And after I scope them, knowing they have EOE, I will sometimes at the time of the endoscopy, just hand them a prescription for a five-day burst to get things going so that we can get them back on track with their medications. This is great stuff. This is very uh, helpful. What about- uh, Good questions. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. (laughs) All 50 of them. The the last steroid question. Okay, so kind of like the PPI one. Do you wean the topical steroids and how do you do that? I do think it's good to have everyone on the lowest possible dose that's effective Mm -hmm. for them. I do think about weaning the topical steroids. If a child is in remission for a while, can we cut this dose in half? Can we make it once a day? And again, the downside being that you have to rescope in three months. We talked about the medication bucket. We can talk right now about the dietary therapy bucket for EOE. I have a few questions about that. I'll start with my first couple of questions. When do you consider dietary elimination? I know you talked about making that discussion with the family, but is there any time where you would strongly recommend it to the family? And how do you start that? I don't think there's necessarily a scenario where I would strongly recommend it. I think there's a scenario where I would strongly try to nudge them away from it. And I grew up as a fellow, I'm in a very diet heavy center here, but I do think that our attitudes towards diet therapy have changed, especially in the little kids. I think we always used to think, oh, it's a three-year-old. They're not going to miss milk. We'll just pop them on Elicare and then they don't need any other food. But I think one of the things we realize is that you need to learn to eat and you need to learn to experience other foods and we need to have exposure to all of these other antigens. I also sometimes think these kids are already so limited, whether they're limited by their IgE comorbidities or they're limited just because they've learned that pasta is the only food that feels good. And so I'm only going to have pasta and milk and that's all I'm going to have. And to take away their main source of nutrition is it's impossible. And it, it really could put a bigger strain on the family or the child's weight and growth, balancing all of those things. And I always say to parents, no matter what therapy we're picking, I was like, this is what we're choosing now, two years from now, two months from now, we can change our mind. Yeah. So this is not an irreversible decision. If we try milk today and you call me in two weeks and you're like, we cannot physically eliminate milk from this diet, and then we'll just change our mind. The little kids who are eating nothing, I think it's really hard to do diet in them. And then on the flip side, the really fibrostenotic people, I feel like they benefit from hitting them hard with the drug because mm. you have to go through multiple iterations of diet elimination and you have continued disease activity for months while we're figuring out your foods, I think that puts you at a higher risk of getting fibrosomatic disease. I do think there's a world where you get the disease under control. And then if you're still interested in diet therapy, we conquer that another day. Yeah. Yeah. So those are my two populations where I have a bit of an opinion. Otherwise I do try to let the family dictate to some extent what they feel comfortable with. Because there's always a group of patients who are less enthusiastic about being on medicines every day. And then there's also people who are less excited about eliminating a major food group from their diet. So the main downfalls of diet therapy are when foods that aren't even in the diet are eliminated. So we have a lot of kids that come in and they're like, eliminated all of the soy and all of the garlic. How much, how much soy, garlic, diet? Yeah, yeah. 
So I do think thinking about what are the major food proteins in your diet to begin with, it just so happens that in America, we eat a lot of milk and we have a lot of wheat, but that's not everybody. So thinking about each kid, if there's a kid who has a very large rice or a very large pea milk diet, we are seeing more and more kids who seem to be reacting to the large amounts of pea milk we are ingesting. Interesting. So would you do like a dairy and soy elimination or a four food elimination or six food elimination? That's a great question. So the latest data coming out of the consortium for eosinophilic disease researchers is that doing just starting with milk seems to be just as effective as doing four food right out of the gates. They're both seem about 40% effective. So whether you gain anything from doing step up versus step down, it's hard to say. I think that there's a world where you could say, let, you know, if we wanted to really try to get clean, we could do milk and wheat. The added benefit of doing soy and egg, I think, are minuscule. And really so few patients are seafood or peanut that we don't even we don't even do six anymore. I think there's a world where patients can do milk. You can say, I, I want to try a milk-free diet first. But if I had to do milk and wheat, then I'm I'm not gonna do that and I'm gonna just do steroids. And that's a totally reasonable way to approach this. Yeah. Yeah. Or I could do wheat, you know, because there are so many good gluten-free options now. And I think there's a way to do that. Or just milk alone, it seems to get a good number of kids into remission. I think thinking about that rather than jumping to the big diet, that's very hard. And the problem with the bigger diet when they've done longer term studies is over time, it's very sustainable for a little while, but like the three-year sustainability is quite low. For example, you do a milk and wheat elimination. When do you rescope? And then if it's clear, do you reintroduce anything? Yes. We usually try to give them two to three months between scopes. And so I always say that the downside of diet therapy is the burden of endoscopy. We're lucky here because we have Matt Ryan who does our transnasal endoscopies. And so for kids who are old enough and can tolerate that, they can get scoped three or four times in a year without anesthesia. I do think diet therapy has a little bit more of an appealing nature to it. But I would say once you eliminate milk and wheat, I would then scope eight to 12 weeks later. And if that passed, I would add wheat back in, wait eight to 12 weeks, and then see where we were and go from there. And then if not, you could switch swap them. One interesting thing is some patients say, I swear I have symptoms when I eat milk or I eat this. Is it is it relevant or is it they probably just are hyper vigilant about how they feel around milk? But what are your thoughts? Oh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So there was a paper published a few years ago. It's a very cool paper where they talk about fire esophagus. And it Uh, talks about this acute reaction in EOE patients who feel it's what sounds like almost like a histamine response. Or if you could imagine uh, a hive in your esophagus, that's just what I picture in my brain. mm -hmm. I don't actually necessarily think that's happening, but where they feel something happening as they eat that food. Mm. I wonder if it's that, or if it is a a nutcracker or esophagus, like some type of fertility issue that's causing an esophageal Mm -hmm. spasm. Something feels really crummy at that moment, irrespective of what food you ingested. Mm -hmm. But I will say once somebody has had that experience with the food, sometimes it's very hard to get them to eat again. And sometimes these kids can really start to limit themselves in a way that is probably not necessary for their disease. So I always tell them to blame their esophagus, not the food. <laughs> it's their esophagus that's reacting, but it's not because of necessarily that food. It was just that your esophagus at that time was 
inflamed and hypersensitive and we have to work to calm it down so that you can keep eating all of these foods that you want because yeah. I really try to keep everybody on as open a diet as possible because you can get very self-limited. And one last question about dietary therapy. When do you ever, and if so, consider elemental diet to manage EOE and what are the indications for that? So that's a great question. I would say the answer would have been different if you had asked someone this 20 years ago. It's definitely something that has changed over time. I think the way we approach putting kids on an elemental diet and using tube feeds has drastically changed over the last 15 to 20 years. And I think because we want kids to eat and because we want kids to learn to eat and experience textures, we're much less likely to consider tubes and elemental formula as a monotherapy. That being said, I definitely think there's probably some kids that do benefit from it. If you have a kid who's already on tube feeds mm-hmm. and not eating many things, I do think that's a nice and a nice easy first line approach for a patient who isn't eating a lot of different things. If you switch the formula from a milk-based or a soy-based to an elemental formula, that alone could induce remission. And then you could add foods later if that was possible. But I think that it probably is not something we would go to as a first-line approach at all anymore. So you mentioned transnasal endoscopy, and I feel like there's so many centers who are all getting some experience with it. What do you think are the Is there like a certain age or a certain, how do you judge who would be a good candidate to try that for? I think sometimes you can get a sense in the room when you explain Mm -hmm. it to them. And if they really start to get nervous, even while you're explaining it to them, then it's probably a no-go. We've had kids here as young as six or seven who are excellent candidates, but it's probably more temperament-based than age-based even. Right. They're probably very mature seven-year-olds who will do what you say. There's also a group of kids who are just so fascinated by the idea of having Mm -hmm. um, virtual reality goggles that they'll do anything. (laughs) You know, every once in a while, a kid kind of faints. happening, Probably because of nerves and all of those things. And we do have a couple kids that are, I tried that. I did it once. I'm not going to do that again. And I'd say the downside of it as someone who likes to really get inside your esophagus and take a look and see how narrow it is, we're missing information on that. I do think that these are probably complementary procedures Mm -hmm. where, Mm -hmm. you know, if, if you've had two or three years worth of transnasal, is it time to just go in and do the whole thing so that we can really get a sense of the caliber of your esophagus? Yeah, that's a good point. So maybe it's, maybe it's even more ideally suited for the patient who's under control, who is stepping down rather than getting food impactions every few months. Okay. That's helpful. So, okay. Now moving on to like one that everyone's going to be asking about. Pilimab, Depixent, recently approved for EOE, even in our pediatric age group. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, what is that who is it approved for? And um, what has your experience been with that? So Dupilumab is going to be a game changer for us. It's so nice to, you know, I start every grant I write, but there is no FDA approved medication. <laughs> so now I have to change that. Right, 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 right. But it's a biologic and it's done as a subcutaneous injection. And it simultaneously blocks both IL-4 and IL-13 signaling because it blocks the common IL-4 receptor. Hmm. And basically it takes out what I think of as the two major effector cytokines in EOE. It kind of takes them out of the game. And in the clinical trials, they only accepted patients who were PPI non-responders. So you couldn't have slightly easier to treat disease. And it tended to be patients 
who had harder to treat disease because they wanted to be in a clinical trial to begin right. with. So usually those are patients who are very motivated because they're not responding to common therapy. So I do think it's a great option, especially for our patients who either aren't happy with their current therapy or are not responding because there are tons of non-responders. You know, so even steroids, which are our go-to for the harder to treat cases, they only work 60 to 65% of the time. So we have this huge number of patients who are untreated and then a whole bunch where it's just really hard to take a medicine twice a day, every day, no matter what I do, I can't do it. I think this is going to be a nice option because the Dupixent was approved in weekly dosing. Mm -hmm. So it's a shot every week. Interestingly, when you look at the data, the amount of histologic response was similar in the week and every other week uh, arms. Mm -hmm. However, only the weekly dosage showed a symptomatic response. Oh, wow. But it truly, the patients that really significantly felt better were in the weekly arm. So that's how mm -hmm. it was approved. In the future, there may be a world where there is some room for step down with Dupixin as well, but we are just still in the, in the wild, wild west with it right now. We did have about I think something like 46 patients with other atopic comorbidities at our center that we had placed on Dupixent for whether it was asthma, nasal polyps, or eczema, who also mm -hmm. had EOE. And for the most part, the overwhelming majority had a very positive response, despite potentially being on a slightly lower dose than the indication is for EOE. I do think it's going to be good for the multiple atopic patient rather than having to inhale steroids and rub them on your body right. and swallow them. Like this will be a game changer for those patients and really hopefully decrease their steroid burden and mm -hmm. streamline their care a little bit so they don't have so much medical care. Right. Oh man, that's exciting. And, and so in my understanding, it's, it's approved down to six months for eczema. And I heard that maybe there's a study down to six months for EOE that's in the works or something like that too. Yes, they just released the data at a European DDW type of conference. And it was on data from kids ages 1 to 11. And it had a very wow. similar results as the grown-up trial in the kids 12 and up in that there was about a 60 to 65% response rate in patients who were PPI non-responsive. And they were treated at less frequent dosing. So they were on the every other week dosing oh, um, wow. in the younger kids. The data looks very nice. So yeah. barring any unforeseen circumstances, hopefully that will be an option for our younger kids soon. That's awesome. Is the dose 10 milligrams? Or the Dupixin? Yeah. So the dose for 12 and up is 300 milligrams oh. weekly. Close. Yeah. Close, close. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just 30 times what you said. <laughs> I don't know what the dose for the, off the top of my head, what the dose used for the different weights in the one to 11, because oh. that was a few mm. different ways of doing it. Okay. And do you think they're going to be like in Flixmab where we check levels? Do you think there's going to be depixent levels? I know this will be interesting to see how this rolls out. There doesn't seem to be antibody development as there is with infliximab, but I think we're still trying to figure out what things we're going to need to follow over time. Okay. As a non-EOE specialist, other than dupilumab, I have no idea what has been in the works, but it seems like based on tomorrow's question, there's some other biologics in the works. So can you tell us about other anti-IL, you choose your number of therapies, like what's going on there? Is there anything approved, anything coming down the pipeline? The anti-IL-5 drugs have recently suspended their trials, okay. which is unfortunate because I think if we had, I think there's probably a population where that might be a good option, but they have not worked as well. And I think thinking about it from the standpoint of the esophageal epithelium, 
IL-13 and IL-4 really disrupt the esophageal mucosa and wreak havoc. And so I do think the anti-IL-13 and IL-4 drugs mm-hmm. both heal the epithelium and decrease eosinophil chemotaxis, whereas IL-5 is really just preventing the eosinophils from migrating in. And this launches into a huge debate within the field right now, which is, are eosinophils the major effector cell in EOE, or is it the T-cells? What? And so maybe the eosinophil, this is something that Glenn Furuta always says, maybe the eosinophil is just the most conspicuous cell. It's not the (laughs) main effector cell. So maybe eosinophils aren't causing all of the damage and mucking Mm -hmm. up things as much. Maybe it's really the T cells and and coming at this from the epithelium, maybe it's a damaged epithelial bed. Mm -hmm. It's really driving the symptomatology and producing the damage. And so the eosinophils are just the downstream immune cell coming in and not really the cell that's causing the damage. There was an anti-Siglicf antibody study, lirantilumab, and that also got rid of all the eosinophils. There were no eosinophils in any of the esophagi, but it didn't produce any symptom relief in the patients. Wow. So it didn't reach its criteria for becoming FDA approved, even though it got rid of all of those great eosinophils. So I think thinking about who's causing the damage. And it's a little bit of a chicken or an egg thing too, with the epithelium and the T cells. Mm. I do think that it seems like IL-4 and IL-13 seem to be big players mm-hmm. right now. And that's what we're thinking in the field, but so, it keeps changing. So. so eosinophils may not, they're just being blamed for all this, you know, disease, but wow, that's crazy. They're just like reacting potentially to damage that's been done. Yes. Hmm. So it, it may be that the eosinophil is less important than yeah. <laughs> And then I guess to wrap up medication, so like anything else, I mean, Montelukas, Chromalin, like anything else that you would use or really we've covered the main things that are in your like- Yes, I, I have not used with success Montelukas, Chromalin, mm-hmm. you know, modulators. I think they really- don't have a role in decreasing this type of inflammation, yeah. at least in the majority of patients. Especially now with Dupilumab, I feel like that would be the one to go to. Awesome. Okay. In your lab, you're doing so much cool stuff. And, and uh, some of the things that you're studying is a clinical translational trial on evaluating esophageal remodeling, and you're using Indoflep to determine the sensibility of uh, the esophagus. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And what is the role of Indoflip in evaluating and management of children with EOE? And this is something that Peter's so excited to hear about. He was like, oh, we have <laughs> to ask about Indoflip. <laughs> yes, I want to know. So Motilitist Peter. I know the majority of people love endoflip too. And I, yeah. I, I like, I ignore the, yeah, the pathways and I'm just looking at the diameter. I'm very focused on the yeah. diameter and I'm ignoring oh, the motilities. But I do think endoflip is a wonderful tool for EOE. I think mm. it, it's good on a few levels. One group of patients that's very nice is the persistently symptomatic patients. So if you have someone who looks like their esophagus is healed, but do they have a smaller caliber diameter? And so they're still having some persistent dysphagia. And I think if our scope gets through, we just know it's bigger than 10 millimeters. We do not know if it's 13 or if it's 17, unless, you know, you're really, really good at feeling those diameters. And I think (laughs) it's really hard. Right. And having an actual number and being able to quantify your esophagus is 13 millimeters. 
And even though you're in remission and your tissue looks good, we should probably dilate you so you feel better Mm -hmm. is a nice thing to be able to do. So I think from that standpoint, it's good. I also think in patients who have had persistently active disease over time, and while they may feel okay to do a measurement and be able to quantitatively go back and say, I'm worried that you have some irreversible remodeling happening in your esophagus. And that if we don't get this under control fast, you might have an esophageal stricture and require dilation is a powerful tool. Right. I'm also interested from a research standpoint on how the esophagus and EOE changes over time. Some work I've done with Khalees Menard Ketcher in Colorado has shown that the EOE esophagus is significantly different in an age-matched group. And so mm-hmm. the EOE esophagus of a 15-year-old is statistically diameter-wise smaller than a healthy control. And so I think that thinking about how the esophagus is changing as you go through development and what does it look like? How does your diameter change in a normal patient? And how does your diameter change in a EOE patient is something we just have no idea about. Yeah. And hopefully with better therapies, we'll be able to have a normal esophageal growth and diameter. But I don't think we've had that to date. So you said like, um, potentially, if there's a really narrow caliber esophagus, even if they're histologically, you know, in remission, maybe that's an indication for dilation if they're still symptomatic. And uh, maybe there's no like, obvious like focal stricture on their endoscopy, but they still may benefit from a dilation. And it would be a tiny dilation. So it wouldn't be one of those gigantic, you know, tearing things up where you're tearing things up. I think in a healthy esophagus going, you know, in someone who's in remission going from 13 to 15, it makes them feel so much better. Mm -hmm. So helping out with that and allowing them to eat normally and feel better when they do eat would be a good way to attack it, but also to take the kids who are still feeling it and be able to tell them your esophagus is 20 millimeters. You're in great shape. Maybe that's reassuring. And you're like, oh, I don't have to worry so much that something's going to get stuck. Yeah. Yeah. And if anything, I think we talked about how like the correlation between uh, symptoms and eosinophil count is not perfect. Like maybe this is a little bit of a better marker potentially that's uh, correlates better with symptoms. So uh, I'm, I'm, it's good to talk to a fellow endoflip fan. Yes. I, I, do think, <laughs> I do think it correlates nicely with things like dysphagia. So I think in patients who have dysphagia, when I go in their endoflip looks worse, but mm-hmm. that's my anecdote. But more to come. More so, to come. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, tomorrow. Is there a oh. cat tail on your face? <laughs> I was I, like, why are you? I didn't know what was going on there. Okay. Well. My cat wants to sit in my lap. <laughs> at least at least it's been quiet. Yeah, Not like my dog good. barking during uh, interviews. <laughs> she's like, I don't know where to sit. <laughs> so our next question is about um a lot of a lot of times I do think about this and we always tell patients, I mean, EOE is a lifelong diagnosis. And for example, in people who have IgE mediated food allergy, they get desensitization to that uh, allergen or protein. Is there a role in that for patients with EOE? It's a different kind of type of allergy, but is there a role for desensitization? Interesting. We have a big oral immunotherapy clinic here, and the main side effect we worry about is the development of EOE. So what we're seeing is Mm -hmm. a lot of those kids who have IgE-mediated disease, um, and they start with the tiny micro doses of the peanut, like just a little bit of peanut. And I, I know I earlier said that peanuts really don't have a role. But when you're an OIT patient and you're reintroducing 
peanut, then I will say that's the caveat to that role. And you get up to a high enough dose. For whatever reason, we have more and more kids who are finding that seem to be developing EOE. And it's only like 5 to 10%. It's a small number. But um, more and more kids are undergoing OIT now that it's FDA approved. So if you have a patient who comes to you who's on OIT, who's having a lot of belly pain, I think we just have to scope them immediately mm-hmm. and see what's going on. Because there is a possibility they had the EOE before they began OIT. Our OIT people here do a very rigorous intake before they start and ask them every GI question on the face of the earth. <laughs> try to really tease that out so they can see a change. But I do think that they're probably is a role for desensitization. It's just probably not oral. You know, one of the studies that one of my mentors did was with patches, milk patches, and put milk patches on the skin, and then had the kids wear them for months and months and months and months, and then challenged them orally with milk. And it was a small percentage that responded, but there was a group that we knew they were milk EOE based. Mm -hmm. After wearing the milk patch for six or nine months, they were able to then tolerate milk. Again, it being an extremely small percentage, but it was still a positive way of doing it because the skin is, is keratinized and the stratified squamous epithelium and the esophagus is the same, whether it's kind of a similar mechanism or however that works. But I will say in my mice, if I give them EOE and I continue to treat them and I continue to challenge them over time, they lose their EOE. So it does work mm-hmm. in mice. So I don't know yeah. why it doesn't work in humans. That's but. interesting. <laughs> no, I want to ask another question. Do you think that we would ever be able to tell what the allergen is from our biopsies, like maybe cell cultures and see what the allergen is? I mean, that is one of the million dollar questions also, the holy grail. And I think there's there's a couple people looking into that. So I I always try to put different foods on my cells in culture Mm -hmm. and see different reactions. And then people are also doing a lot of T-cell work and culturing the T-cells with milk and egg and all of these things to try to see if they can come up with assays. So I think that's still TBD. Yeah, It's not quite there yet, but there's definitely, whether it's the epithelium that's having the reaction or the T cell that's having the reaction, I think the gastroenterologists and the allergists can fight about that all day. But <laughs> um, I think that hopefully that would be great because if you could come to someone and be like, it's these three things mm-hmm. and that, that, that would be a dream for a lot of patients to be able to know without undergoing many endoscopies. Wow. So hopefully in the future. Yes. Yeah. That is awesome. I've like really loved this conversation. Dr. Mm-hmm. Miriam, you're like a, such an impressive person. You're like doing all these exciting things. And like, it just seems like the EOE field has been really changing. Like just uh-huh. even just in the past few years, you know, like Five years ago, we we're talking about PPI, REE, you know, and this is not even a thing anymore. Um, that's awesome. I know it's a, it's a wonderful field. I would tell all the fellows that they should do EOE because because it's so new and it was only discovered in 1995. Everything you figure out is is interesting because we yeah. know so little about it. There's so many unexplored avenues. Yeah, that is right. that's awesome. So um, unfortunately, you know, we do have to wrap up the conversation at some point. But uh, okay, so looking back on your career. What do you think is the most valuable advice you've received and what advice do you have for our listeners? Um, so I always think back to a conversation I had with my early mentor, Melan Wong, when I was starting off as a fellow. And she said, the thing you want to do as a fellow and an early um, investigator is to put as many tools in your toolbox as you can. Hmm. So in the lab, you want to try to 
get competent at as many skills as you can. You want to think about how you can use these skills to learn more skills. And so I always think about that and how I really tried to do that when I was a fellow and tried to put as many tools in my toolbox so I could be good at flow cytometry, I could be good at Western blots. But I think it's applicable to clinical research and basic science as well. Just get as many tools as you can in your toolbox, and then you'll be able to do as many things as you want. Yeah, because it's a lot harder once you're an attending to learn anything. Um, but that's great advice. Once again, Dr. Muir, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for answering our questions. This was a great conversation. Any last words for our listeners? Thank you guys so much for having me. It was a blast. Yes. We'll have to do a part two, you know, once, yes, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> talk more, maybe a whole episode on Endoflip. Yes. Oh, yes. Eventually. I'm, I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, yes, thank you so much. That was a great episode. I'm excited that Dr. Muir is going to join us for the Pete's GI chat. Oh, yeah. I'm sure, sure that like triggered a lot of questions for from people. So yeah. be a uh, robust discussion. Yes. And if you have follow-up questions, it's a perfect time to ask. And if you like what you heard, it would be really good if you can support us on our Buzzsprout page. There's a link to support the show by donating to the Naspagan Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspagan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the fantastic things Naspagan is doing, including supporting pediatric AI research and public education programs. And as always, this podcast discussion views and recommendations are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening, everybody. Peter, enjoy Amsterdam. Bye. Bye. I will. <laughs> yeah.